The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hi, I'm Eric Savitz, Associate Editor for, for Technology at Barron's. Welcome to Tech Trader on Barron's Live. I am happy to have joined me today, Brooke Dane, who's a tech fund manager at Goldman Sachs. Uh, Brooke, thanks for being with us on the program today. It's great to be here, Eric. Thanks for the time. I'm looking forward to our discussion. So, you know, this has been a fascinating um, and very difficult uh, year uh, for technology stocks generally. Uh, we've gone through what was a very uh, severe downturn almost across the board. Almost every tech stock lost ground. If you go back to, I guess it really started uh, last November um, until just a few weeks ago. Um, it looked like everything was uh, was uh, trouble. Uh, and then uh, sort of a funny thing happened um, as we entered what was entered the June quarter earnings period, uh, which everyone was expecting the worst. Um, and that we were going to get misses and guidance uh, down uh, cuts and all that stuff. And um, and the bad earnings period turned into a catalyst and the stocks all rallied. Uh, and now it sort of looks like maybe we're not so sure. Um, and so I, I want to get first your sense of where we are generally as you, as you look across the tech landscape. And how are you feeling about, you know, your... Uh, your options uh, yeah. in, in the broad the, the broad view for tech companies. Sure, and uh, yeah, I will. I'll echo your comments that it does feel like the last nine months have been one of the more challenging periods to be a tech investor in my thirty years of investing in tech, and that's not only just because of the magnitude of the drawdown, which you know any longtime tech investor will tell you you do go through periods where the stocks retrench and and you know kind of reconsolidate. But this past year, it's felt like basically everything has moved down in lockstep relative to its growth rate. And there hasn't been a tremendous amount of differentiation between companies that we would think are on the, the right side of disruption and that are winning, that are taking share and doing well, and then other names that we think are more struggling. So it ha has been a challenging period. Um, but even with that as the backdrop, we're very encouraged by the outlook that we see right now. We think that you know, many of the things that people were excited about tech a year ago or two years ago are still very much in, in place. And that discerning investors who can, you know, who can uh, differentiate between the winners and losers can find real opportunities. And, you know, I, it does matter that you're buying these companies at great entry points and great valuations today. So, you know, um, on a free cash flow basis, we're finding real opportunities, uh, especially in enterprise facing tech um, mm -hmm. and in some of the more growthy parts of the market where, you know, investors have have shied away because of the interest rate fears and, and what's going on in the global macro. Um, and it's created opportunities for for longer term investors to to build positions in great companies, we think. So it does feel to me like when you look at some of the causes of the decline. Right. So we had very high valuations, in some cases, just astronomically high, historically high valuations that seemed um unless the world was changing in some mysterious way, uh, not, not sustainable when you had things yep. trading 40 times or 50 times sales, things like that. Um, and now more recently we've had 
like some macro issues. So very strong dollar. Everybody has been talking about that. It shows up in like every single earnings report where anybody's doing any business outside the U.S. We've have um, you know a whole bunch of macro issues, inflation, higher interest rates, all this stuff. Um, the supply chain issues, which seem to be easing a little bit, is be my impression. Um, but then that all feels like if you bundle all that stuff up, most of that feels ephemeral in nature to me. Um, now, I think there's some exceptions to that, but how do you think about that? Yeah. So, you know, first off, I would just always caveat it with it is very stock and company dependent as to how you kind of parse through what these data points mean and, and how they're impacting the businesses. But I would largely agree with you that, you know, first of all, on the macro side, we're clearly in a more difficult environment now than we were in nine months ago. Combination of, you know, central governments trying to, you know, to slow down economies to fight inflation and just rising rates and the impact of all that. That's that is very real. It is impacting business. You mentioned currency impacts. I tend to believe the market looks through currency stuff pretty quickly, but, you know, it is it does hit reported numbers uh, for many of the U.S. based uh, companies out there. But that said, you know, as we think about the rate and pace of disruption and what's happening and what's driving, you know, adoption of technology, it's still there's lots of positives out there. Now, there are parts of the market that were clearly benefiting from the kind of the COVID lockdown um, things and that, you know, they saw tremendous pull forwards of demand and the market and investors are trying to grapple with where is demand normalizing versus, you know, what we thought was normal. But, you know, if you... So that's very, and, and the very classic kind of, you know, COVID beneficiary stocks are all kind of working through that at the same time. And you're yeah, still- well, we, we saw that with Zoom just yesterday. Yeah, right. right. And so that leave that piece aside just for a minute. But if you think about some of the more of the, you know, the, the companies that are actually, you know, helping businesses operate more efficiently, get customers, you know, faster, better, keep them longer semiconductors that are driving the, you know, the wave of cloud adoption and, and the, the wave of EVs and, and all of those fundamental drivers, we still think those are very much firmly in place. And we're finding companies that we think, you know, uh, can really benefit from those trends and that look incredibly attractive from an entry point standpoint. So, you know, we've always been big believers in balancing the, you know, the, the, the positive and the excitement of tech with this basic valuation underpinning and saying, hey, you know, at the end of the day, free cash flows matter and, and you're buying a business that's generating those future free cash flows. And, right. you know, as we sit here today, you're getting the opportunity to buy businesses that we think can compound at really fast rates and really interesting price points. So, okay. and, so, so that has us bullish and and really very constructive on the outlook for as we sit here today. Okay, so let, let's go one level down and think about it from sort of a sector point of view. and. Uh, there are lots of ways to cut this, right? So big, medium, small caps, U.S. versus uh, global stocks. Um, and then, of course, you know, by sector, software, hardware, semiconductors, yep. equipment, internet, whatever. Um, so to talk a little bit about where in that sort of three-dimensional, maybe it's more than three, uh, four-dimensional, yeah. we call it, uh, matrix, uh, you are seeing opportunity. Yeah, so... Uh... So you're right. There's so many different ways you can peel this onion back and look at different things. And there's opportunities in, in various pockets and various pieces. But as we sit here today, you know, we think a couple things. First, we think that there's a massive opportunity in enterprise software companies that are growing kind of in that 20 to 30-ish percent zone where the multiples have really corrected very materially back to below historical averages. Um, and these, you know, you can really differentiate the winners and the losers. And you can find a company that you think has got, you know, 
a really nice product cycle, the ability to cross sell, upsell, all this kind of like magic that happens in software that are being you know valued alongside kind of companies that we don't think have the secular trend. So mm-hmm. enterprise software in that mid cap space is really interesting. Mm-hmm. We're finding opportunities in semi-cap equipment. Um, and I'm, I know we'll talk about that in a bit, but there's some really interesting demand backdrops in semi-cap equipment that we think are gonna be durable and, and, and drive these business higher. So those would be two. Then the next layer I would put on it is, is we actually think investors broadly are missing some of the global opportunity. So we've long had a thesis that tech innovation is broadening out globally because of the cloud and because of 5G and, and all those drivers that I think everyone knows about, but investors are broadly underrepresented in, in their holdings in some of these global tech names. You're also at a, at a increasingly, I don't know if it's bipolar or tripolar or how you would describe it, but the, the tech ecosystems are fragmenting and um, you know, we think investors need exposures to all the different ecosystems that they can get. The final piece um, that I think is worth talking about and it is a new change in our thinking is we had been relatively cautious on some of the ad lever internet names just kind of broadly as we went into this economic slowdown and as there was some fundamental um, questions on some of the business models, some regulatory concerns, mm-hmm. we're actually starting to come back to some of those names right now because the stocks have corrected so materially. And and so we're at the front end of building some positions in that area where we think there's really some unique opportunities as if you have a longer horizon and as you think about what you know the back end of this year and into 23 and 24 might look like for some of those names. So those are kind of some areas that I'd say you know investors should be really focused on as we see. Okay. So, so let's dig into a few of those. So on the ad side, um, you have a fairly uh, sort of controversial pick there. And <laughs> Uh, let's let's talk. Let's talk. Yeah. So uh, we are big fans of Snap uh, and Snapchat. And, you know, the stock is down about 75 percent year to date. They had a pretty disastrous second quarter in terms of, you know, they pre-announced the quarter halfway through. And then when the actual results came out, it, it showed real material deceleration in the business and and surprised people with the, the slope of how quickly that declined. Um, you know, and surprised us as we got in there. But we actually really like the name as we sit here today, and there's a couple reasons. So first, Snap Plus, which is their new subscription offering, we do think that that's doing actually very well out of the gates. And the third-party data that we look at shows real traction in that and surprising traction. So we think that's going to become a reasonable leg for the hardcore users of Snapchat uh, and a way for the company to monetize the business. Secondly, one of the the, one of the big learnings through Snapchat is, is that the business is probably more seasonal than people give it credit for mm-hmm. and a little bit more discretionary. And our belief is, is as we move through this year and head into the holiday period, some of the ad spending that got turned off on Snapchat is likely to come back in and, and lead to the business doing better. And then they have some very specific product kickers in the nearish term. Um, you know, so their Spotlight product, which is the, the TikTok competitor, um, monetization is just beginning to ramp there. And then, you know, some of the success they're having in AR, uh, we'll see some campaigns really kick off as we move through the back half of the year. And then, you know, finally, or two final points on Snap that we really like. First, um, on the longer term, we do think they're leading in AR. We do think that's going to be a big market. A lot of what they're doing is ahead of the big global competitors and think that that'll drive value over time. Second, their map products is really unique. And, you know, everyone always talks about Snap as being a competitor to TikTok. And we actually think that use cases are very different, that Snap is more of a messaging platform, more of a way you're staying connected with your friends and your close associates. The map functionality they have underneath the hood there is really intriguing. And I'm I personally am very excited to see where they take that over the coming years. Final so, point on Snap is we, we love that management team and, and think that they've done a great job of executing given difficult circumstances. 
Could you tell me a little bit more about the map product and what they're doing with it? Because I'm not sure everyone. Yeah. So, you know, the, the map product, for those of you that are on Snapchat and, and being an old tech investor, you know, my children always make fun of me, the fact that I'm on Snapchat and, and you know, send them pictures of our pets every day or whatever. But um, when you swipe over, it can show you where things are happening in the world. And it's got great geolocation data. And it what's unique about it, not only does it show you where something's happening. So we were earlier talking about New York and you could see where there was a group of your peers or other people doing things in New York, mm-hmm. but it just opens up a, le- a level of local advertising dollars that um, that Snap hasn't tapped into. So Snap, you know, historically has been very good about attacking the big, you know, brands or working with the big agencies. They haven't had nearly the success of the other big internet players have in tapping that local small business market. We think the, ne- the maps layer gives them the op- opportunity to attack that over time. So it just, it looks very interesting to us. It's still very early and, you know, they're very conscious of not trying to monetize it too early. They really want to build usage and show the value of the, of the property. But essentially, unlike, you know, the maps that we're all used to today, where you can see where, you know, driving directions or, or you know, where you're going, this is going to show you where people you know are doing things and, you know, will help you discover, you know, fun things to do in your life. And, you know, I think all of us need a little more fun in our lives. So, um, yes. you know, we're, okay. we're pretty encouraged. But. I do have to ask you one other question about Snap, which is, they, of course, uh, like Meta, have been hurt by Apple's uh, app tracking yeah. and transparency. This is, you know, their their push to uh, make uh, uh, sort of stress privacy over the ability to target advertising for their, yeah. uh, their partners, and that's really hurt Snap. Um, and do you do you think they? T- but what you're so you, what you're describing in a way is not directly a route around, but like another way of approaching the advertising market. So, like, how yeah, do you that problem. Yeah. So, you know, the change in tracking has influenced the whole ecosystem. And from top to bottom, it is, you know, we think of that as essentially lowering the water level across the entire ecosystem because it, you know, it removed that ability to track stuff off anyone's individual app. And so you Mm -hmm. couldn't see the conversion. You couldn't see, you know, if your targeting was working and it just, it depressed the the return on ad spending. Um, That impacted Meta, it impacted Snap, it impacted YouTube. Um, that is a persistent thing. And by the way, we, you know, our baseline is, is that privacy hurdles continue to rise over time. doesn't mm-hmm. matter what the platform you are, you know, the, the, the era of three years ago is gone in terms of the ability of these companies to track everything you did. And, and we think that's structural. That said, you know, both Apple and these companies are working on ways to improve the effectiveness in a privacy safe way. And mm-hmm. we think that technology will continue to scale and ramp. You know, ultimately, it, it probably from the highest level is going to increase the value of Apple's information because they, you know, they're going to be the keeper of how this works to a certain extent. But mm-hmm. then it also massively increases the value of things that happen within your app. Um, and so, uh, again, to the extent that Snap can keep people engaged and doing things within their own app, they get to see all that data and use all that data and that will help them. So that's another reason why, you know, Map is an important strategic initiative for them because it just increases usage and, and shows where people are spending time. The, okay. the final piece around Snap that just that keeps us encouraged is engagement is actually very robust in Snap. And you know, the, if you, you want to think about where uh, a social media or an internet-based stock really starts to break down is when engagement starts to go away. And you know, we haven't seen those trends in Snap and it's something we watch very carefully to make sure that the longer-term thesis is intact. But so as we sit here, you know, stock has corrected in, in a very material way 
we think there's reasons to be positive on the fundamentals, reasons to have a, an interesting longer term outlook. And, and we think it's an opportunity to, to build positions as we say. Okay, let's, uh, let's talk about enterprise software. So um, I know one name that you like, which had a very nice quarter yesterday is Palo Alto.Works. Yep. Uh, of course, they're a key player in, in cybersecurity. They reported really strong numbers yesterday and they also announced a stock split, a uh, three for one stock split, which shouldn't mean anything, but- Yeah, it's <laughs> one of those things where, yeah. 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 Um, so so uh, talk a little bit about, uh, about Palo Alto and like cybersecurity more generally. Are there other ways you're thinking about yeah, so you know we have um, we have been very positive on the cybersecurity um, industry as a whole. Palo Alto has been the largest position we've had in that, but you know we also are big believers in balance and, and owning you know a, a few names in a sector like that. And actually, there's some really interesting global opportunities in cybersecurity, which we'll come back to in a minute. But yeah. you know, with Palo Alto specifically, this is a name um, where you know actually we're we're in the process of writing up a kind of a case study around what led us to invest in this company five years ago, how we've built our position over time, and and how we've you know flexed it up and down across that horizon. But structurally, you know, we looked at this name and said, you know, their core business around firewall is becoming more of a software like annuity. We think they're actually gaining share in that market. But but the big risk, you know, three four years ago was that that core firewall business was going to decay. We didn't believe that. All of our evidence showed us that that wasn't the case and that by adding more software around that, it could create a persistent growth vehicle there. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the, the management team very smartly pivoted to attack some new markets in next-gen security that's more cloud-focused and more access-focused. And they bought some really interesting assets. And then it was all about, can they execute? Can they scale? Can they drive higher volumes? They've done nothing but deliver over the past three years. Um, and now you're seeing that next-gen business become the driver, real driver of growth across the totality of the business and persist and take share from some of the next gen players. So, you know, this this was really kind of check all the boxes from our process and philosophy where we had, you know, a, a thesis that they were going to gain share and that the next gen stuff was going to scale and grow rapidly. The valuation was incredibly attractive. We really liked the management team. And so we were able to big build build big positions and, and have maintained those over time. And you know, trimmed and added depending on the relative strength of the stock. But fundamentals here continue to be some of the best in tech um, mm -hmm. with a management team that's executed really, really well. So, um, you know, it's been fighting a wall of worry and it's been fighting a, a, a you know, either the comps are tough or, you know, is, is something going on competitively. And all the work we do from a bottoms up basis has given us comfort that, you know, um, the business has been doing very well and, and hence the reasons we've had such a big position. in it. Now, I will say, you know, um, as a, a longtime software investor, mm -hmm. uh, one thing I've, I definitively can tell you about investing in software stocks is, is that any given quarter, strange things happen. And, you know, this was a great quarter from Palo Alto and, and kudos to the team for executing well. But, you know, we've also had software companies that we've owned that have had uneven quarters. And, you know, that, that does happen, you know, as companies start to be more big deal dependent, you get more lumpiness, you know, everything gets back in weighted to the end of the quarter. So, you always have to be careful about that and thinking about that with software. But the the way you add alpha and software over time is not only identifying the long-term secular winners who have got the competitive advantage and all that, but it is taking advantage of when the market's concerned about near-term fundamentals or overreacts to, you know, a, a miss or a hiccup in the business model and having the confidence then to build positions. And so anyway, so, okay. uh, but so, so, yeah. Yeah. So, so I would note that as we talked this week, uh, this is actually a really big week for for uh, enterprise software. Uh, yep. Now that's because, like, you thought you know you thought earnings earnings period was over. No, 
this is uh, this is a big week for uh, all these companies with January year ends or at least uh, July quarter ends certainly. Um, and we're going to get a ton of them in the next couple of days. Um, it can be a couple of days that you like. Um, and yep. so one, one I wanted to, to drill down on is is uh, Snowflake, which is another sort of somewhat controversial name. Um, you talk about stocks that reached, you know, gigantic valuations. Yeah. And Snowflake reached a gigantic valuation. Now, it is also true that Snowflake has a growth profile that doesn't look like very many other companies. They have hum humongous growth. Um um, and they also fit in something else you just mentioned, which is sometimes you have a quarter that's got a little bit of a, uh, some flake, flakiness uh, to it. And they had a rough uh, April quarter. Uh, they, yep. they um, you know, this is, again, this is a company that just keeps producing fantastic growth. Uh, but they had a little bit of concern with a couple of customers. This is tied to the fact that, uh, I'll just uh, I'll shut up in a second, but I think it's important to, to note that, they have an unusual business model that's tied to uh, consumption of uh, resources, not seats yep. or contracts or whatever. And they had a couple of customers who were using it a little bit less. But talk to me a little bit about how, uh, not so much of this quarter, but like how you're feeling about Snowflake, their ongoing growth opportunity and what makes them so unusual. Yeah. And, and so um, it is, it's a fantastic company and it's a name that we have owned um, in the portfolio when we took advantage of some of the weakness coming off that last quarter to take positions up a bit. You're very right to, to point out that this, you know, it is unique. This is a consumption-based business model. And, you know, much like the SaaS models, you know, 10 years ago where they hadn't really been through a market cycle and investors weren't comfortable understanding the dynamics of how SaaS would perform during slower times or during a, a recession or what have you. Um, consumption-based models, you know, as investors, we haven't really seen those um, through a business cycle yet because it's a relatively new initiative. Now, you know, um, that's not entirely true because actually, if you look at IBM's mainframe business, that has been, you know, entirely consumption driven since the dawn of time. And we have seen that, but right. different growth profiles, different kind of things happening here. And so there is concern in the marketplace about what's happening on a consumption basis. From our standpoint, though, if you just stand back for a minute, the, the concern around consumption isn't that Snowflake is losing competitive um, you know, usage to other platforms. Um, it's that, oh, gee, the economy is weaker now. Are some of these businesses going to peel back? Um, I, I don't have an edge in calling the macro. You know, in general, like we talked about earlier, like things are slower out there. So we would expect there to be some, you know, some pressure on consumption-based models. But this is a company where every CIO we talk about talks about how the fact that it's becoming more strategic, more critical to how they're running their data infrastructure. What they're mm -hmm. doing from a product pipeline standpoint looks really compelling. It believes, you know, it leads us to believe that they can unlock big uh, market opportunities over the coming years. Uh, their customers really like them. And the competitive uh, noise you hear from, you know, either some of the big cloud uh, providers or some of the, um, the uh, best of breed guys, they're just not competitive with what Snowflake is doing in its core market. So, you know, we're looking at this as an opportunity where if your horizon, you know, is a little bit longer, you can really, you know, create a big position and, and own this thing over time. Now, that said, you know, we are always big believers in the valuation side of the argument. And while the valuation is corrected materially in this name, it's still, um, you know, you have to believe that this growth is persistent for the stock to look undervalued. Right. We do, but because so much of the future is dependent on that growth rate, the position size that we hold in this name is going to be different from uh, Palo Alto, since we just talked about that a moment ago, where 
you know, the valuation is is much more kind of in the here and now. So, um, right. so we really we like it. Um, you know, I, as I said before, I don't have an edge on this particular ninety days that we're going to see here. We do think that you know some of the customer weakness they saw last quarter, and some of you know, some of what they also saw was is that they're just optimizing their software, so they're delivering better value to their customers, which mm-hmm. um, you know hurts them in the near term. But you want to build customer loyalty you know, make them more efficient, make them run better, faster, cheaper. Um, you know, so all those trends are playing right. out. So I, I think it was like, I think maybe it was two quarters ago that they changed their pricing yep. scheme. And yep. so they they basically, I think they were charging like by, you maybe remember the details, like they're charging by the hour and then they switched to charge by the second or some, some form. Yeah, there's some of that. And then they there was a technical uh, fix that they did that let things optimize at a faster rate and just use less, you know, underlying kind of storage behind it that that was a step function down that, you know, um, that again was driving right. know, good benefits. And, to the end and, and you know, I, 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 around that time period, I had a chance to talk to Frank Slootman, who's the CEO. Yeah. And Frank basically said, um, well, when you make things cheaper, people use more of them. And so, or whatever it is, and that's sort of his philosophy, I think, is like trying to drive more usage. I would know one last thing before we leave Snowflake, which is uh, interesting to me, is that if you look for other companies with consumption-based models, like one set that falls into that camp are um, are the, the cloud uh, giants themselves. Yep. We don't really have as much visibility into the dynamics there because they're all buried inside Amazon, Microsoft, or Alphabet, and so you don't you don't see the dynamic in quite the same way. But they all three of those had pretty good June quarters, so exactly, yep, positive yep. stuff. Um, we'll yeah, see. so I would agree. And um, you know, we look at all of those things and and try and you know triangulate around where numbers are moving in the near term and and over the kind of the next few quarters to help us you know gain conviction or lose conviction in a given name. Um, so yeah. But um, let's uh, uh, there's we can keep going on software, but I want to talk about semiconductor equipment um, and and the chip industry. So this is an interesting moment here. Right. So we've just had uh, Intel today announced this very interesting deal to finance uh, their fabs in Arizona with um, an outside investor with Brookfield, um, which is fascinating. They've actually hinted that they were looking for people to do that with, and but we got the details. And then, of course, that follows the CHIPS Act passage. Um, so we have a lot of activity on the, uh, you know, in, in efforts to try and shore up U.S. chip manufacturing. And this is a classic short-term, long-term question here, right? Because like, yeah, short-term, then I think this was nicely captured when Micron reported earnings uh, recently, and they basically said, um, Demand is softening near term. We're going to cut our, you know, CapEx plans for 2023. We're going to spend less than that in 2022. And like at the exact same moment in time, they announced plans to invest $40 billion, I think through 2030. I'm not sure if the time frame is exactly right, um, in new chip capacity. And so, so that raises really interesting questions for the semiconductor capital equipment companies, which is which part do you pay attention to? Do you pay attention to... Uh, well, things are going to be soft maybe next year. Yeah. They've been, or is it, we're just getting going on these like gigantic projects. Um, so how do you, how do you think about that? And um, where would you focus? Yeah. So, you know, it is, it's, it's fascinating. So I remember five years ago sitting down with the the management team of, I think it was KLA at, the, at this point in time in a meeting where we spent an hour meeting debating about whether the, the outlook for the next year at that point was going to be, 30 billion or 35 billion in WFE spending. And it was, you know, the, the whole thing was trying to triangulate around how big the market was. 
the debate in the market today is, is, you know, next year going to be 80 billion or a uh, hundred billion. And like, so just the orders of magnitude of how well this industry has done and how much bigger these markets are than we all thought five years ago is, is worth just noting and putting a pin in that like, you know, it turns out that semiconductors are actually the, you know, if, if data is the oxygen of the economy, you know, semiconductors are the oil and, and you need both of them to kind of run, right. You can't do anything without semiconductors. The other thing that the world has realized is, is that like, you know, having having domestic uh, capacity really matters, and it doesn't matter which nation you are. Every nation wants its own domestic semiconductor right. capacity, and so um, we're seeing a tremendous amount of effort to you know rebuild domestic fabs in the U.S., in Europe, in China, to mm -hmm. kind of make sure that every you know each nation has its own ability to stand and and operate on its own. All of that creates a tremendous backdrop for this industry, you know. Going a level deeper, you know, we do think that the foundry model is going to continue to be the, the the most preferred model out there from a manufacturing capacity. So you want to make sure that you're owning equipment companies that are really winning in the foundry space. You know, we really like KLA because of that. We think that they're, you know, there's a lot of reasons why they're taking market share, but we think that structurally they're going to take market share in an industry that's going to be an attractive industry. Mm -hmm. And again, the valuation looks very interesting to us. So. Um, all of those come together and lead us to think that that's a great way to, to get exposure to this industry that we think is going to be, you know, a long-term secular winner. And we're willing to invest in the face of, you know, some of the questions about what is the next, you know, couple months or, or two quarters look like for the idea that we think that the structural growth of this industry is likely to be higher and more persistent. The other thing we didn't talk about is, you know, the, the whole industry has been plagued by um, the the manufacturing and supply chain issues. So they actually haven't been able to deliver enough of their equipment to their end customers um, as we've moved through this year. Some of that is getting better and it will likely lead to you know revenue performing better. Orders are what's gonna matter for the stocks. They always do trade on the order, um, you know, the order flow and who's doing well. But but we, you know, from our work, you know, we have a high degree of confidence in in KLA specific ability to continue to grow orders faster than the market thinks. Yeah, it'll be an interesting reporting earnings reporting year uh, in 2023, where you could have you could have big drops in orders in some cases, but they'll have huge backlogs. Uh, yeah, I, I happened to talk recently to uh, someone from Global Foundries, which is a you know fab, yep. a, 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 a contract fab, and one of the things that they said was uh, they spent less this year on on semiconductor capital equipment. Than they had planned, not not for any reason other than the fact they couldn't get stuff delivered. Like they just like the 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 stuff that they were trying to buy had very long lead times, and so you know you have multiple months sometimes uh, for individual pieces of equipment, um, and so they'll they'll the reported numbers will be good even if the orders are softer. And I guess, but as you say, that maybe the orders that drive the. Uh, yeah. We'll see how but it's also it, it is fascinating where this is an industry that has consolidated materially over the past 15 years right and so you know oftentimes you'll see investors looking at historical kind of peak to trough multiples and where you know these stocks should trade based on orders but i would just put the hypothesis out there that while history matters and it does show you kind of how cyclical industries should trade across a cycle this cyclical industry has changed and so you know we doubt that the troughs will be as deep um, as you move in kind of across a cycle. And again, we think that 
even with that said, we don't think that even if orders aren't super robust next year, it's unlikely to be a deep downturn because of the secular trends that we see going in there. So we think both of those things speak to the favor of kind of why you want to uh, be investing in this group. So it does kind of beg the question of how you think about the semiconductor stocks, um, which, uh, you know, are we've had some tough uh, quarters recently, right? I mean, Micron's quarter was not just a bad quarter. It was like a bad quarter six weeks after they had given guidance. <laughs> good quarter, uh, yeah. Like a better, like not so good quarter. Like, so they, it's yeah. like in a cascade. And we saw some of the same pattern in Intel where they just had horrific guidance. AMD uh, was viewed as a mess. Like, so we've had a few yeah. of those. A lot of them tied to PC demand. Um, but it does, you know, like when Micron reported, they started talking about maybe automotive was going to be a little bit soft, which has been one of the, like yeah, the, one of the bright stuff, spots out there. The yeah. bright spots. So how do you, how are you feeling about the chip stocks more generally? Yeah. So first of all, I I do have to give a shout out to my co PM, who I know you've met as well, but Sung Cho, who um, you know works side by side with me, is um, one of the best semiconductor uh, investors in the world, and I am blessed to have him to uh, you know be the guy that much like I spend my days in in enterprise software and the internet. You know he is he is really great on semiconductor yes. stocks, and so um, but okay. So all that said. You know, we do think that in general, you can't look at the semis as one industry group because of the, the things that you just talked about, right? The the things impacting Micron versus Intel versus AMD versus NVIDIA versus the whole analog supply chain. Um, you know, there's just so many different demand drivers out there that, that shape the growth of these companies. Um, so you really want to be looking for two things in semiconductor stocks. First, you know, who are gaining, you know, which companies are gaining share and which end markets that you feel good about. So, you know, where can you find somebody that you think that the market is underestimating their ability to grow share and sockets in a particularly attractive end market? Mm -hmm. And then the second biggest driver out there is where do you see margin opportunity and specifically gross margin opportunity? Because, you know, when semiconductor stocks really have big periods of outperformance, it tends to be tri tied to when they're seeing real gross margin leverage in their business, which mm -hmm. comes from winning good slots and then having a good manufacturing advantage. So for us, you know, that's kind of the lens that we're always looking for. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, we are finding some opportunities out there. Now, I will say that, you know, in in the near term, um, some of the areas that we've really liked in the analog spaces, those have actually been great stocks. Um, and you are starting to see maybe, I wouldn't say red or yellow flags, but maybe just a, a, the green is getting a little less green okay. in terms of, of how they're doing it. So, you know, we're trying to, to parse through those demand outlooks to just think about where we are. But so if like I, industrial and automotive kind of end markets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, specifically the EV levered supply chain uh, in automotive has been has been really interesting and really good. And then, you know, the other side is that some of the data center parts of the semiconductor world have actually corrected pretty materially and may, you know, again, we're we're kind of parsing through that in terms of is there opportunities there. So uh, um, I want to talk for a moment about um, let's leave the United States for a few minutes. Um, yeah. And uh, talk about China. And uh, you've got some really interesting ideas about how to play China, and they go beyond um, some of the familiar names that uh, we always talk about. Yeah. So, you know, um, first, just from the highest level, you know, the world's second largest economy growing, and unlike the US and Europe, which are working on rapidly slowing their economies to combat inflation, you know, China is actually 
pretty rapidly trying to stimulate their economy to to get things growing as they move out of the the COVID lockdown era. So the just the demand dynamics are different in China than they are in the U.S. Um, and we think that that's something investors should be paying attention to. Second, we talked a little bit earlier, but this idea that um, you know the tech ecosystems are developing in parallel but separate really matters. And we think there's real opportunity to have to invest in companies that are going to be able to 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 you know, kind of leverage the, the Chinese growth and the Chinese market to really drive outsized returns over time. An area that we're specifically very interested in is the cybersecurity vendors in China. And you know, the, the first, the largest kind of thesis is, it's very unlikely that China is gonna use US-based cybersecurity uh, defense companies and, or Israeli cyber defense companies. Like it's just, you know, they're gonna develop their own indigenous industry there. They have some great technology leaders there that are public, that are growing fast, that will you know will grow and take share of that market secondly and, the, the, likely, yeah. and, and by the way it was i think it goes without saying not only are they unlikely to use us or israeli based uh, cybersecurity software we are unlikely to use chinese yes. originated uh so this is a domestic china play which is partly the reason that these names are not so well known here exactly and uh you know the second thing to think about is is that as a market, it's very underpenetrated in terms of you know the the maturity of its cyber defenses. Um, it just it in general in you know if you look at levels of tech spending relative to GDP and relative to enterprise you know tech is further behind in China, and we would posit that the the cyber defense industry is also underpenetrated, and so you should get this really nice J curve. Two names that we've been very focused on are Venus Tech and Sangfor, who you know we think are market leaders have great technology, are exposed to the right end market. So they're, they're much more on the next gen security. If you go back to the Palo Alto analysis from earlier, they're in where the market is going and they have really good products for those things. And then their valuations are actually at a discount to the global peers, um, frankly, because I don't think investors have been looking at these names and focused on them. So, you know, it's we've seen- Venus opportunity. Tech, which is like one word, like the planet Venus, yeah. right? Yes, and exactly. For, how, do you, how do you spell saying for? Uh, uh, let me make sure I get this right for you. So give me a second, because spelling is not my forte. Uh, but S-A-N-G-F-O-R. Um, hang on a second. Let me pull it up on my screen to make sure I get it. And while you're doing uh, that, these are these are stocks that local trade. listings. Yeah, local so, listings. So there's no there are no ADRs for these. Guys. Yeah, and in general, so it is S-A-N-G-F-O-R technologies. Um, uh, yeah, these are local um, A shares or trade in Hong Kong, and and you know. From a risk management standpoint, we're believers in, in owning the local where we can for many of these kind of companies. Um, so. And are they are they are there are they focused specifically on the same kind of like enterprise level security applications? That, yep. You know, yep. And and so. exactly and and government as well, um, a state and local government in in China as well, and. Um, you know, um, they have slightly different go-to-market models. Um, Sangfor, uh, you know, well, one of them is more direct, one of them is more channel-focused. Both models are working very well. They're scaling. Um, Sangfor is growing a little bit faster. Venus Tech is a little bit more profitable. Um, so it, you know, we think both are going to be long-term winners in a market that's very fragmented that should have, you know, great growth over the intermediate-term time horizon. So great. So we've uh, successfully gone ten minutes over. Um, Thank you for doing this. I have more to ask, but I'm going to hold my tongue and we'll do this again. Um, this has been super helpful. It's great to talk to you. Um, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It's been great. For, uh, uh, thanks for joining us. Um, and anytime. We'll
we will do it again. Um, uh, thank you. Thanks to everyone for being with us. Uh, please join us uh, again tomorrow. My uh, colleague, Ben Levitson, who's the Barron's deputy editor, will be talking to another one of my colleagues, Josh uh, Nathan Katzis, who's our healthcare uh, reporter about the outlook for healthcare stocks, the latest news on COVID-19 and vaccines and all of that stuff. Um, thanks to everyone for being with us again. And uh, please uh, be well and stay safe. And Brooke, thanks again. Thanks for having me and hope everyone is well. So thank you. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.